Hi, we are Rini and Rebecca from the Euromarine Network. This is our Researchers in the Spotlight podcast, where we meet up with expert marine researchers from our network to hear their stories. To showcase their insights and highlight their groundbreaking achievements in the various special, rare and novel areas of marine science. For this very first episode, we are very happy to have uh, Mark John Costello. Um, I will introduce you, Mark, and then uh, you're, you're welcome to take the floor. So more, Mark uh, John Costello is originate, he's originate from Ireland. He graduated a bachelor in Galway. He followed a PhD based in Ireland's unique marine reserve. Then you did your postdoc in England and Scotland. You had a lectureship in Trinity College in Dublin. You have established an environmental consulting company called EcoServe. You have served as executive director of the Huntsman's Marine Research Marine Science Center in Canada. Until then, you returned back to an academic position in Auckland in New Zealand. You are currently a professor at Nord University, Arctic Norway, and you're a visiting professor at the University of China in Tingtao. Among all of these, you have also supervised uh, several students, uh, 70 graduate students. You've peer-reviewed more than 260 publications, and you have played many leading roles in international organizations, including being a lead author, a lead author in the research IPCC report. The list can keep on going on. Um, so. I'll just uh, put a small dot here, and then I just wanted to ask you, what was it that initially sparked your interest in marine research, and, and how did you embark in this career path? Well, my interest in marine research only began in Galway when I was a, a student, but I was always interested in nature, right from a very, very early age, as far as I can remember. I, I was always amazed just watching insects and other wildlife, just what their lives were and what they were doing, and, and were their lives like ours, which they are really, they just go about it a different way. So when I got the opportunity to go to university, I wanted to study zoology. I talk about veterinary science, but I didn't get enough points. And anyway, after I learned that veterinarians have to stick their arms up the, the bottoms of cows and horses, I thought that's not very pleasant work. So <laughs> I, I thought zoology was much more interesting and more open because you could do anything. And in Galway, they specialized in marine biology. So we did a lot of marine biology field trips and it was, it was really interesting. Uh, so even though I started my first project, which was like a nine month uh, BSc honors project, it's, it's now would be called a master's, uh, it was on freshwater, but uh, because that was my supervisor's interest at the time. And that was interesting. But then I went on to do PhD in marine science. And I thought I was very lucky to get paid to do something that I enjoyed doing, a subject that was interesting to me. Wow, what a journey. That is indeed very lucky that you've merged your passion with your work so well. Um, and within your field of expertise, what are your primary research interests? So when I was in Galway, one of my uh, lectures talked about the theory of island biogeography. One time we had this in our honours year, these short courses. And I was just amazed that somebody had figured out a mathematical way of explaining the geographic and richness patterns of life on earth because when we look at nature everything seems so chaotic and so much is going on but actually there are some patterns to it so that kind of got me interested so my phd i did some work on biogeography and then um, people think why is it important well it's important in nature conservation and now very much in climate change so it has applications um, and i find even today now it seems to be somewhat a forgotten subject in marine science um, 
and a lot of marine scientists don't really, they think it's just geography and they don't understand the theories behind it. So I spend quite a bit of time uh, teaching courses and explaining to referees of my papers what the differences and the patterns of the theories are in the subject. Indeed, uh, I... Yeah, so then I went into ecology, I guess, as part of biogeography. So, and I did work in aquaculture and um, climate change and invasive species, but they're all kind of connected to this biogeographic background. Indeed, biogeography is a term that we don't hear so often, uh, and that we like. It's it's a very interesting uh, field of of combining maths and and uh, and then the ecology. So, could you highlight any major findings or breakthroughs that you've achieved, and also how did they happen? Yeah, um, so probably in recent years they only happened. Um, so one was we started creating some online databases, which is how they, they ended up happening, just because we thought they were useful. So we created a database listing all species in Europe, so we could organize the taxonomic names and which were synonyms and which were not. And then we did a world list, and this was just to be something useful. And then I got asked as part of the Census of Life to set to lead the Ocean Biodiversity Information System, which we set up over about eight years. And now it's hosted by UNESCO IOC in a very, very well, uh, they do a great job. Um, and then we started analyzing the data in these big databases because we could never have looked at global patterns before by one person because it would take so much time to collect all the data. Um, and uh, but one of my students who's doing a master's on razor clams, she discovered when she looked at the latitudinal gradient and how many species there are that it wasn't peaking at the equator, there was a decrease at the equator. And we thought, oh, it must be something unusual to do with razor clams. Um, but the journal was accepting the paper, but they wouldn't accept that she called this bimodal, you know, with a, a dip at the equator and two peaks in the middle latitudes. So we looked at all the literature and we found that it was always bimodal in all the papers, but nobody ever talked about it before because people just assumed that their data was wrong. Or, or they just drew a line across it. They just didn't think about it because everybody says, you know, richness peaks at the equator, but it doesn't. And it hasn't actually since the last ice age. And, and now it's getting deeper due to climate change. So um, one of my students then had a great paper uh, two years ago showing that it, the, it's getting less and less species at the equator and more and more in mid latitudes due to climate change. And it's because temperature drives this pattern which then means that, well, most marine species can be anywhere they want. Um, they can move with, with the, the changing temperatures. So maybe biogeography is not so important in some ways for marine species compared to terrestrial. So that was the first one. And then arising from that, we looked at when does the number of species decrease? Well, it decreases above 20 degrees centigrade. And this was a big surprise because we think, well, you think more species would be in the tropics in the high 20s. But in fact, at 20 degrees, we get all the, the temperate climate species and all the tropical species together. And it turns out we just had a paper accepted two days ago. I'm very excited on the 20 degree centigrade effect. So I think this will be the biggest finding of my career because it turns out that this happens right across freshwater, terrestrial, air breathing, water breathing. And it's got an underlying um, physio biochemical reason that energy uh, energetics are most efficient at 20 degrees centigrade in cells. So this is sort of like a general pattern that 20 degrees turns out to be this pivotal kind of temperature for, for life on Earth. Uh, even in the fossil record, they now find there's been a paper showing that you get more extinctions above 20 degrees when, when the 
the average temperature is above 20 degrees. So we still need to work out the details of how it works, but I think this is exciting. That's very interesting. And, and when, where is your paper published? So where can we read it? Uh, it's not published yet. They just accepted it with minor revisions um, two days ago. It's in um, a very good um, journal, Frontiers in Biogeography, which is the journal of the International Biogeographical Asso uh, Society, IBS. Oh, congratulations on your accepted paper. Um, that's that's really exciting news for you. And also, thanks so much for sharing those two major breakthroughs, which I'm sure are news to a lot of our listeners and are very, very interesting. Um, because I I'm sure that a lot of people don't know about the 20 degrees centigrade effect that and that it is true for most species on Earth, really. Um, and also what is very interesting is that um, species move to higher latitudes due, due to global warming. What I'm wondering, and I, I know that you mentioned that in one of our previous conversations as well, is do you have any insight on how is exactly this moving to polar regions um, of species takes place? They either swim as individuals, which a lot of the fish, the pelagic fish are doing, or they move over generations. So their northern edge of their population keeps moving northwards like plants would, would do. And um, they've probably been actually doing this for millions of years because through the ice ages this probably happened so we imagine like a, a concertina effect where you get you know uh, species move towards the equator and the and the during the ice ages and then they move back again to the high latitudes when the temperature is warm so marine species have probably been doing this a long long time mm. and uh, the, the other thing that was is surprising in the literature is that um, people talk about extinctions all the time but they use the word in different ways and a lot of people are just talking about the local absence of a species so the species is not at all extinct and there's there's almost no species that have gone extinct due to climate change most species have gone extinct due to people killing them mainly and now habitat loss um, there's only two potentially gone extinct due to climate change and they're not marine species so uh yes it's, it, it's also interesting when we, we start talking about these problems we look a bit more deeper into it as to what really is a problem and how nature can adapt to many things better than we can sometimes. That is certainly very interesting to hear that there's so far only two potential species that have gone extinct due to climate change. Again, I think that is something that probably most people wouldn't presume as everyone is thinking that a lot of species have already gone extinct due to climate change. But it just reminds us that there is a huge capacity for species to adapt also when nature is changing. Um, and all of those findings are important to bring up to the policy and management sphere. What, according to you, are the priority areas for marine research that could have a significant impact on policy development? Yeah, so I've actually been talking to some of the policy people um, in Europe and, and nationally in the last couple of years because we're now leading this project, Marine Protected Areas Europe. So they keep asking me all these really simple questions that are very hard to answer. So um, like they would want our results two years ago because they're already having to manage and create marine protected areas um, in the absence of enough data. So one of the questions was like, um, well, if we don't have enough data, what are the most fragile areas and what do we stop doing? But in some ways, the answer is obvious. You stop bottom trawling, which destroys habitats. That's kind of a 
you know, uh, the King of England apparently tried to ban bottom trawling in the 19th century, more than 100 years ago, and uh, <laughs> his law wasn't obeyed. And, and, uh, and now we're 100 years later and people think bottom trawling is somehow there's no alternative. Well, of course, there are alternatives, ways to catch fish that are less harmful to the environment. Um, and uh, I, I think there's a there's a communication issue with wider society. We need greater public awareness of really what's going on. Um, a lot of protected areas are not protected at all because the fisheries policy doesn't align with the nature conservation policy. This is a problem in Europe, in Canada, in um, Norway, and other countries where you have different government agencies um, not, not not synchronizing their um, their management objectives. Um, and, and in a way, one of the problems is science communicating this knowledge effectively and not over exaggerating it, because if you dramatize it, the policymakers think you're just over, over exaggerating the issue. And uh, so you need to kind of make it convincing and make it sound like common sense. And actually, a lot of these things are common sense. It's kind of odd that people come up with all sorts of crazy ideas that um, like uh, people, fishing communities, indigenous communities have long known that if your fish population is declining, then you stop fishing and let it recover. Um, so it's really strange when you hear fishery, some fishery scientists saying that marine protected areas don't benefit fisheries. Um, so there's, there's all sorts of strange arguments go on that sort of limit act action. Um, but, I, but I think, yeah, yeah just get to what, what would be the science? Well, I think we need faster publication of field data, like, um, like the weather. We can get weather data within hours. <laughs> Um, why can't we get biodiversity data at least within days or weeks? Well, actually, we can. There's a people, there's a, a new website I saw, birdweather.com, where in real time you can see what birds are occurring all over Europe and North America from automatic uh, little microphones that are recording their sounds. And citizen science data gets published in the GBIF every month, and it's research grade. And yet scientists' data is very, very slow. So I think this is one of the things, this is one of the things within Euromarine we're going to look at with the MBON Europe, which we might come to later, um, to try and accelerate getting data published and, and stop this sort of putting embargoes on data until we get our papers out, which might never happen. I have papers going back decades that I haven't published. So. Mm. I think all scientists build up this backlog of work they should publish, but never get around to. Since you mentioned MBON Europe here, just a quick explanation of what it stands for. It's the Marine Biodiversity Observation Network, and it's part of a global effort on biodiversity observations, which has been going on for about 15 years. And you, Mark, have been chair of their steering committee for about 10 years. And the main goal really of MBUN is to spearhead the coordination and active monitoring of marine biodiversity by organizations in Europe. And um, since you mentioned um, Euromarine here and, and how we can help with that at Euromarine, um, because as you know, we're always looking for ways to assist um, the marine research community further at Euromarine. Um, so my question is, how can Euromarine en engage with policymakers, for instance, and stakeholders to ensure that scientific findings are efficiently communicated um, and, and utilized in, in the decision-making process when it comes to policy? Yeah, I think, 
I was involved. Um, I've only recently got more involved with Euromarine since I came back to Europe. But before Euromarine, we had other organizations and projects. And at that time, I think we were doing the wrong thing. We were campaigning a bit like a trade union. We said we needed more research funding for this and that and the other. We needed more funding. And this is... Um, this is not very convincing to policymakers. Everybody wants money off them, you know, every organization in society. Um, and instead, we should have a much more um, positive uh, relationship with the policymakers and government agencies. We should be showing how we can help them because we're a network and how actually institutions are already doing a lot of research that maybe the policymakers don't know about. And that's one thing in MBON Europe. We're just getting um, agreements signed now with I think we may have 12 or 13 or 14. 13, I counted. I counted 13. 13. Yeah. 13. Oh, that's an unlucky number. We should make it 14 as quickly as possible. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, because institutions are already monitoring biodiversity, but we don't exactly know which ones and what they're doing. So this is what we're trying to do in Euromarine to bring this together and show policymakers that actually the scientific community is doing a lot without any extra or special funding. Um, because we're all on the same, um, we all want the same thing. We want good data to give good advice. And, uh, and I think this will have a positive feedback with the policymakers and the European Commission and other agencies, because they'll see, well, why would we give money to some new project that wants to do everything all over again? Why not give the money to people that are already doing it and just add some, a little bit of value to their work and greater recognition? So I think this is uh, maybe a path in your marine. Maybe there's other ways as well. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, well, I guess the research is not an easy path to take, and then it's not a travel with pebble stones. So I was wondering what are the main challenges that you have encountered, if there were any obstacles, and how have you addressed them? Well, um, I was actually talking to people in India a few weeks ago uh, who have a hugely growing society and they're all trying to get jobs. But in the 1980s in Ireland, when I did my PhD, it was the same. There was no jobs. And when I did my bachelor's, there were, there were no jobs. I think only one in 10 of our class got a job in, the, in our field. And uh, that was the honours class at the university. So... Um, but now there's many jobs, actually. So the, the, the biggest challenge early in my career was actually getting a job <laughs> and getting, you know, I looked around for postdocs. I only got one offer in, in the time I had. So I got that one. Then I got another one. Um, then I got a, a teaching position, a temporary one. Then I set up a consulting company with my research group because we had lots of external funding. Um, then I happened to marry a Canadian and got another job in Canada for a while. <laughs> Um, so I think once we have a job, that's that's the most important thing. And um, a, a job in academia is especially privileging because we can do whatever research we like, usually in the university. And we should do whatever research we think is important, not just what other people want us to do. Um, and I think uh, so. A lot of my best papers were just uh, review papers or thought papers or papers from collaboration with other people, like my most highly cited paper is with the over 100 authors from the World Register of Marine Species, where we reviewed the database content and we tried to infer what it meant about marine biodiversity. Um, and I think that's over a thousand <clears throat> citations now. And before that was a simple methods paper, which took me one day to write. Uh, it was part of a bigger paper. The journal didn't want the big paper to say, oh, the, the, 
this fish species only occurs in one place, it's boring, but the methods is very nice. So I submitted the methods as a separate paper and, uh, and then some other papers. So uh, yeah, we don't actually always need a lot of research funding. We just need time, time to think. So that means work-life balance and having good health and all these things as well. Thanks so much for that. Um, that's that's very true. Actually, it always starts. It always starts for the job. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so far, we've talked a lot about your current research to date um, and your interests um, to date. So now I wanted to take a look into the future. What are your future research plans and, and directions? Are there any specific goals or projects that you're currently working on or planning to pursue? Yeah, well, for the last few weeks, I've been pretty much full time writing a new uh, research proposal. And this is to try to advance marine protected area management by doing more automated or semi-automated monitoring in uh, protected areas. And it could be actually anywhere um, and try to shorten this gap between data collection and publication um, so we can get it and then produce that data, produce kind of meaningful indicators not like some scientific index that nobody can understand um you know that people have done with a number on it but um more like uh you know well if there's very big fish in this place then they it must be reasonably natural because they haven't been fished out this sort of thing and which is obvious kind of but this is easy actually to measure if you can find get enough measurements and you don't have to kill fish to do it you could use video cameras and with cetaceans, we can use sound. With birds, we can use sound. And we could probably start using video cameras. We have two live streaming in the fjord here now. And they're not that expensive to put in anymore. It's a few thousand euros for the cables, and they're plugged into a scuba diving center. And we see all sorts of cool things on the videos every now and again. It, it's got, uh, it's like those apps we use for uh, security cameras on our houses. It can send a message to your phone anytime there's movement. So every time a fish swims past the camera, I get a message. <laughs> but I had to turn it off because during the summertime, the fish are going past nonstop. So, um, but I think we can use these new technologies to get better data and data that's relevant to society and science at the same time. So that's my kind of focus at the moment. Yeah. What was the coolest species you see you saw passing by your camera then? Oh well, last week we saw a, an otter. Swim okay. down, sw swimming along and it, it glides you it's very when you see something you say what is that because it looks like a worm running through the water because it swims so uh, fast yeah. on the water and it's so streamlined and then suddenly it goes underneath the rock and it pulls out a wolf fish a, a small wolf fish just about 30 centimeters long and then it swims away it caught the wolf pull, pulled out the wolf fish and we have seen these small wolf fish but also there's some giant ones that are nearly two meters long that are, you know, when you're swimming past scuba diving, they're, they're as big as we are <laughs> with our fins and everything. And the, we saw the wolf fish fighting on another case. Another day, two wolf fish came up and started fighting with each other. That was kind of dramatic. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and could, would, would we ever get to have this app as well in our mobile phones so we can have a small sneak peek on marine biodiversity? That could be a very, yeah. very nice and outcome. That was actually the idea we had at the start, but the nature conservation, we had to get permission because it's in a marine protected area. Mm. And the Nature Conservation Authority was worried that if we made it public, that people would go fishing there more and, and yeah. catch the fish. So we have to come back to how we publicize this because the idea was to live stream it on 
on a website somewhere like like bird nesting cams that people do yeah um, I'm jumping to the next uh, question for you. So North has uh, joined the network recently and you have been a very active member of, uh, of uh, the steering committee of Euromarine. Um, you've already mentioned that uh, MBON is one of, uh, of the activities that you're basically engaged in and very actively engaged in. And I was wondering um, how, of course, Euromarine has been supported to you, supportive to your, to your career, but also if you think that there are any other new services or initiatives that we could develop uh, for the scientific community? I was a chair of the Marine Committee for about 10 years, and eventually I realized we were a bit too academic. We were all talking about how to monitor and what variables to use and all this kind of thing, but we didn't actually know who was doing it and what was happening, which is what we're trying to do within your Marine. Um, and then, so I think that's, that, I think that, that could be one central thing in your Marine could do. I mean, it's only biology as well, and your marine should be more than biology. So maybe we should broaden it to include other uh, types of environmental variables as well and be more holistic. Uh, maybe we should connect it to industry monitoring in the future. You know, wind farms will all be monitoring something. Uh, and many fish farms monitor data. Maybe there's a way in the future that all this data can be coordinated and made available uh, so we know what's going on in the marine environment in a more cost-effective way. Let's uh, try to do our best here uh, so we can support as much as possible with uh, bringing networks together, observations together, and then having a real an impact. A little before we finish uh, off for today, uh, um, do you have any individual or experience that have particularly inspired and influenced your journey? Hmm. Oh, it's a hard question. Well, I mentioned the professor in my first university. I guess that was, he put me onto biogeography. Um, I've had many good friends. I got married. I have the same wife now for many years so far. We're over 30 years married. So <laughs> this, and she's a scientist as well. So it's been very supportive. I, I admire quite a lot of people in freshwater science. It was Noel Hines. He's dead now some years ago. He wrote a book on freshwater biology. I think Daniel Pauly's, uh, who's one of the most highly cited scientists, he's a very um, uh, eloquent speaker and he writes lots of good papers and he carved his own path through his career. He didn't follow the traditional routes. He often was outspoken against uh, conventional fisheries management and government organizations and he got in trouble, but he stuck to the science and he's shown that uh, the, in the long term, when you're, when you're right and the science is correct, then um, and the truth comes true. So that's uh, that's what comes out. Um, yeah, that's probably, I can't think of any, but there's probably other people if I thought about it more detail and many people in, on the other hand, you know, there's many people I collaborate with, many of my students, of course, many of my PhD students, we made these discoveries I talked about were all um, in part came from some of the work my different PhD students were doing and master's students. Um, yeah. I don't want to single any out or I might get in trouble. 
bit like you know it's like which which is your which is your favorite child if you're a parent yeah. <laughs> exactly um that actually leads over to our last question for the day um very nicely uh, which is specifically interesting for all our young marine researchers out there um which is what advice would you give to early career researchers who are aspiring to make an impact in marine sciences well, we actually wrote a blog on this. I could send a link to it on the, the Oceans of Biodiversity website that I have oh, at the University of Auckland. And we actually had a, a workshop um, in the university. And then later on, I, I polled about 30 colleagues around the world and got all their experiences. What advice would they give to their younger selves? Um, so uh, I think I think when it comes to research, I think what uh, a, a colleague of mine said he was in the medical school he said you only get a master's or phd for writing so the writing is the most important thing and most students leave writing mm. too late they should start writing day one and then you, you start writing and reading and writing and reading and then you do the lab work or field work or any other data analysis work as well but it's all it's about the communication is science is largely through writing and uh the students that do well usually write and publish early. That's actually, I think somebody proved that. They did an analysis of researchers' careers. And the only significant variable was how early in their career they published their first paper. That was what the best guarantee of long-term success. <laughs> wow. That's yeah. definitely a very interesting insight. I'm sure a lot of our listeners to the podcast will be um very motivated after hearing this to write more. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, I, asked, I remember asking a, a visiting professor in Dublin, he was an Irish guy who'd gone to Canada and been, he was a dean of a school there. And we asked him the same question. This was back in Wu, many a long time ago. And he said, just publish often and publish anything as much as you can. <laughs> in, those, <laughs> in those days, they didn't care about journal impact factors or anything. But obviously, your visibility to the community, you're only visible once to most people once you publish. Um, other, otherwise, you're just within your own local bubble, which is not really your, your community. Your community is the, the wider scientific community. And the only way of getting to them is through giving talks at conferences, which, again, is, a, is another bubble, um, is, is by publishing. Yeah. Thanks so much for those insights. Um, that was our last question for today. Um, so Good. thanks again for, for telling us about your experiences and your insights to date. Um, we'll find the blog article uh, that you published in North University and link out to it. That yeah. sounds really interesting, actually. Um, yeah, we learned a lot today, especially very interesting, I thought, was the insight on species richness um, that no longer peaks at the equator as probably most people would presume um, and all of this due to climate change basically um, and that species are now moving to higher latitudes uh, which yeah I find very interesting um, but I specifically take home your insight from, from very early on in the interview where you said that actually animals are very much like us they just have different ways of um, showing it basically yeah. um, and I thought that was very true and and a good note to end on um, because it makes it makes protecting them so much more worth it as well <laughs> yep. um, and yeah thanks again for for uh, being here today good thank you very much uh, Rebecca Norini thank you Mark 
And for anyone tuning in today, actually, um, thanks so much for listening and um, stay tuned for our next podcast episodes because this was just the first in a row. <laughs>